Good to see everybody. If you've got a Bible, let's get after it. Open up to Mark chapter 12 with me, if you would. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, you might find a black hardback underneath the seat around you. You are more than welcome to grab one of those if you'd like to follow along with us. My name is Mike Skinner. I'm the lead pastor here at First Colony Christian Church. And we are very happy that you've joined us for worship this morning. Uh, as a little part-time gig, I teach a few classes at Houston Baptist University. And so this was our first week uh, back in school. And so being a prof in a classroom, there's, there's always this dynamic the first week or the first couple of weeks where students are trying to kind of figure out who you are and what the class is going to be like. And so um, through, you know, the way you describe the syllabus and the tone that you speak and the way you interact with students, there's a few questions on the students' minds that they're trying to figure out. The first one is, who is this guy? Um, you know, what makes this person, this man or this woman tick? What makes them laugh? What makes them annoyed? Um, what are just interesting to them? Things of that nature. What kind of classroom do they like to run? Uh, the second is, why should we listen to this person? Um, I get that a lot. I've got a young face. I'm actually like 38, but I look <laughs> a lot younger. Um, and so through, again, your tone and, and your um, kind of ability to convey uh, knowledge and convey that, that you know a vast amount of knowledge, right? Students then come to trust you and respect you. Okay, maybe we should actually listen to this guy. Maybe he has something to teach us. And then really the, the biggest goal a student has is because the grade is the god of the university, right? Is what does this professor expect from me? Um, this class, right? I mean, what do I have to do to get the grade that I want to get um, to further on in my career and, and, and my uh, goals for college uh, and things of that nature? And so, because I've been having that interaction with students over the past week and they'll probably continue for a couple of weeks, um, I was reminded as I was reading our passage this morning from Mark 12, it, it seems an awful lot like Jesus is going through something similar. Um, like the people that Jesus is encountering are asking these questions Who is this guy? Who does he think he is? Who does he claim that he is? Why should we listen to him? Why does he have any sort of authority? Why should we trust him? And then what does he expect from us? I mean, what, what's his goal for us if we're going to listen to him? What kind of life is he expecting from us? And so hopefully we'll see all of that in our passage this morning. We're going to be looking at Mark chapter 12, verse 13 through 44. Now I've got to warn you, this is a very long passage. Um, and there are four or five sections here that we could spend easily a week on just each individual section. And I thought about doing that, um, and I had a couple of thoughts. One is I'd like to be done with Mark before 2018. Uh, and so if, if we were to slow down that way, it, it might linger on a little bit. And the other is the way that Mark is written, and we've talked about this before. You, you may have forgotten it was a while ago. Um, Mark is a very fast-paced gospel, and we miss that when we preach it every week. Right? It kind of slows down and drags out toward our lives. We've been preaching it for at least a year now, right? So it doesn't feel very fast-paced. Um, but the Gospel of Mark is a short gospel. It uses this word over and over and over again immediately. Immediately this, immediately that, immediately this, immediately that. And you'll remember that Gospels like Mark were originally meant to be heard. Um, they were written to a community that was largely illiterate. Uh, and so a presence or a... a, a a person would come and present the gospel to them. We had an elder, uh, when we started Mark, read the gospel of Mark um, at a live event. And we just sat with no text in front of us and listened to it. And one of the things I still remember about that was how fast-paced Mark's gospel was. 
um, how many times there'd be a story and it'd be interesting and I'd have a question about that story, but I'd have no time to process that question because we're off again to a new story. Um, and in particular, how fast the pace picks up toward the end of Mark's gospel. After all of this ministry, after all of this action, where we are in Mark's gospel, we are literally pages away from Jesus' crucifixion. And in the gospel of Mark, if we were to view it as this kind of like territory, all of the weight and gravity of the narrative falls on his crucifixion. And the closer you get to that, the more you're drawn towards it, the faster the slope is. It's a snowball that's been building over and over and over again. And so I want to kind of communicate that just in the way that I'm preaching Mark. Um, so we are going to go through a long passage. Um, part of that is for time reasons. Part of that is because, I th- again, I think in just reading Mark, that's how the text is supposed to go. Um, it's fast and it's furious and it doesn't involve um, these characters from the movie um, or cars or scenes or anything like that. Um, but it is moving towards the crucifixion. So here's what I'll say at the very beginning, because I'm not going to preach a 50-minute sermon over all these passages. I will not be able to say all that I want to say about these paragraphs. What I would suggest to you is perhaps one or two of these passages will stand out to you and resonate with you. And perhaps sometime this week you can do some more independent study on your own or with your friends or with your family and meditate on it. And, and think about how it might apply more specifically to your individual lives. Um, I will go through, I'll make some comments, and then again I'm going to try to connect it back, uh, all back together to a larger theme of who Jesus is, um, why he should be trusted, and then again, what is he expecting from uh, the people he's encountering. So, here we go in Mark chapter 12, verse 13. It's Holy Week, the last week of Jesus' life. Um, we're still on Tuesday. On Sunday, he enters into Jerusalem. On Monday, he causes this big scene in the temple. And now on Tuesday, he shows back up at the temple, and everyone's on guard against him. And so the first thing that happens, if you remember from last week, as he comes back to the temple on Tuesday, is the leaders of Jerusalem come up to him and go, Who are you? Who gives you this authority? Who do you think you are? And what we'll see today is, again, a flurry of questions about who Jesus is, what gives him the right to come do and say these things, and then he'll go on the offensive about what he expects. So we'll pick it up in verse 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius, a common coin, and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and whose inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Now, there's so many fascinating things in particular about this one passage. And I think it's often a very misunderstood passage. Um, Note first that the Pharisees and Herodians now approach Jesus. They have been sent by somebody else. Okay, So there's plotting behind the scenes. The Pharisees and Herodians come. Um, They have been against Jesus earlier in the Gospels. We haven't seen them so far in Jerusalem. But it seems like the chief priests and elders, um, the Sanhedrin, after their encounter with Jesus, now go behind the scenes and send some others. And notice they come to try to trap him with this question. This is hunting language. I know we've got some hunters in here, okay? Jesus is an animal in the scope of the religious leader's gun at this point. 
Um, this is not a legitimate question, right? Jesus is being hunted um, for the noose to go around his neck. And he gets this question about taxes, which is a great way to get a noose around someone's neck. Um, what do you think about taxes? Now, um, this is not going to directly apply to the American political situation, okay? Um, it does, though, have a heavy uh, application for this first century context. The tax in question here is what we would call a poll tax or a census tax. Um, and it was one of the most hated taxes by the Romans that the Jews had to um, comply with. Um, Jews, um, for many reasons, didn't like taxes, one of which we can relate to. We don't like giving money to the government, right? I pay thousands of taxes every year. I need a new accountant because I don't make that much money, okay? I don't understand why I'm paying so much into the system. I draw relatively little out of the system. Um, so everybody, including a first century Jew, doesn't like to give up their hard-earned money, right? We can get an amen? Amen, all right? We all would appreciate lower taxes. Um, I will say we have it a little bit better than the first century Jews by some estimates. Sometimes they were paying up to 80 to 90% of their incomes in taxes. And so they did dislike taxes because, again, it was giving away some of their money. But there's a much deeper, multifaceted layer to the reason they hated taxes so much. Another reason is because it was a constant reminder that they weren't free in their own land. God had promised them this land. And they were there, but they were still slaves. They were still owned by the Romans. They've been passed back and forth from empire to empire for the last um, few hundreds of years. And currently the empire in power is Rome. And every time they pay taxes to Rome, it's another reminder, it's salt in the wound, that while we're in our country, we're still not free. We're owned by this foreign government. We're subject to them. And then lastly, what would really upset a Jewish person, particularly about the census tax, is the coin they would need to use to pay for it, this denarius. Um, a pious Jew in the first century would have considered this an idol. Um, you were not supposed to make graven images, the Jewish people had gotten in the law, particularly of animals and plants, particularly of human beings. On this coin, there's a picture of Tiberius's face, one of the Caesars, one of the, the emperors. And then there's inscriptions on both sides. There's words. On one side, it says, Tiberius, son of Augustus, the son of God. On the other side, it says, the high priest. Now, if you were looking for a more effective way to upset a Jewish person, you probably could not find one other than this coin, right? This is blasphemous. And most pious Jews refuse to touch this coin. You'll notice Jesus is not carrying a denarius, right? There might be an intentional reason behind this. Jesus might be one of those people that says, this is, this is not even available to me to operate in this kind of currency. Um, so he has to ask, hey, bring me a denarius. Let me see it. Which, again, is kind of incriminating on the part of the Pharisees and Herodians. If they're these pious Jews, why do they have these coins so readily available? And they bring it to Jesus. Um, this is a trap question, okay? Which means both answers are wrong. If you say, yes, pay taxes, you're wrong. If you say, no, don't pay taxes, you're wrong. Um, and that's the key to understanding what Jesus' answer really gets at. Most assume Jesus basically says, pay your taxes, be good citizens, pay your taxes, and we'll move on from there. And they, they seem to think Jesus separates out our political life and our spiritual life, right? Do for the government what the government needs, and then 
do for God what God needs. Sometimes it gets a little messy in the middle, but for the most part, try to separate it out. Um, the reason we know this is not what Jesus is saying is because that would have gotten in big trouble. But he gets out of this trap question. Um, the trap is this. If he says, pay your taxes, all the Jewish people who hate the, the Romans so much now don't support Jesus anymore. They go, you're another Roman puppet like the rest of them. And if Jesus says, don't pay your taxes, he's going to be crucified before Friday. The Romans are going to come and say, you're telling people not to pay taxes. Here's what happens to you. You're dead. There's not even a need for a trial at this point. Jesus gets out of this situation without either of those scenarios occurring, which is a key to that kind of ambiguity of his response. So he says, um, knowing the history behind this tax, in fact, in 6 AD, um, a guy named Judas in Galilee, where Jesus grew up, revolted against the census tax, led a kind of battle against the Romans. Jesus would have been about 10 years old at the time. Jesus was born around 5 to 7 BC, no earlier than 4 BC. And so Jesus probably would have either remembered this battle over the taxes. If not, he would have grown up hearing about it. Um, and then not long after Jesus, there's another big battle about this particular tax again. This was a litmus test for a lot of Jews for whether you were a faithful Jew or not. Are you paying this census tax? Um, Jesus says, bring to Daenerys. He largely ignores the question, um, and he just asks them a question about the coin. He says, whose face is that? Caesar's. He says, what's the inscription? They say, it's about Caesar. Then he says, okay, give to Caesar what's Caesar's, give to God the things that are God's. Um, now, the word he uses for likeness is the Greek word icon. It's also the word you find in the Greek Old Testament for the image of God in Genesis 1. Remind yourself, what is the image of God in Genesis 1? Well, it's humanity. Human beings bear the image of God. And if you might think more broadly, what is God's stuff? What does God own? Well, a faithful Jew would say everything. Land, ourselves, Caesar himself, the Roman Empire. It's all under the authority of God himself. Uh, your translation pedals it back a little bit for you, but there's actually a difference in wording too. Um, the question gets put to Jesus, should we give taxes to Caesar? When Jesus says render to Caesar, that's probably better translated in like more normal terms, give back. So the question is, should we give the taxes to Caesar? Jesus' response is, give back the money that Caesar has given you. So now can you understand how you might read that as a little subversive? It's his money, yeah. Give it back to him. Throw it back. Why are we even involved in this? And then he says, and give to God was God's, which could be read by a certain audience as a kind of a wink. What's really God's? Everything. Including these stupid coins and including the stupid Caesar. The reason this answer is so brilliant is both sides can interpret it to mean what they wanted. So when the Romans say, hey, we've been hearing you've been telling people not to pay taxes, Jesus goes, no, I said, give back to Caesar what Caesar's. That's his face on it. Give it back to him. I wasn't telling anyone not to pay the taxes. And when the Jewish people come and say, you're just a Roman puppet telling people to pay taxes, he goes, no, I said, who, who owns things, right? Where's the, where's the image? Give back to the person who, who has the image on it. Um, in fact, this actual phrase is a motto for Jewish revolutionaries that go to war um, against uh, other emperors and other empires. So the Maccabeus revolts, their big phrase was, pay back the Gentiles and obey the commandments. Now in their sense, pay back meant kill. <laughs> and obey the commandments meant follow the Torah, be faithful to God. Um, 
So Jesus' answer here could be read both ways. I don't think he gives us a clear definition of maybe what we should think about when it comes to taxes and government and political or spiritual lives, that kind of thing. I can give you a quick summary of what I think the Bible teaches as a whole. I think it's clear there's a handful of passages in the New Testament that say Christians are called to pay their taxes. Um, Romans 13 being the primary one. Um, the reason is not because Christians should respect the government or think the government's necessarily smart or doing good things for their taxes, but Paul seems to think it's just not worth getting in a fight over. It's not worth being seen as bad citizens for. So he says, pay your taxes, um, even if it's the Romans, right? Pay your taxes. Don't get involved in this Jewish fight against the taxes. Pay your taxes. We're also told in the scriptures that when it comes to laws that disagree with one another, so if the government requires one thing of us and God would require another thing of us, that we should make sure our priorities are in the right place and practice, be prepared to practice what's called civil disobedience. It's where we say we, we will not obey that command of the law because we answer to a higher authority. Now, we're not going to do this uncivilly, disrespectfully. You have to arrest us. Here's our hands. Here's our feet. Take Martin Luther King Jr., okay? We, we will obey God before we obey man. Um, and then the last thing the scriptures say about their Christian relationship with the government is that it should be one in prayer. Um, Christians should be praying constantly for their government's leaders, um, and for peace, not only in their own country, but for around the world. Um, Jesus here gets out of this trap question, okay? He moves on to another trap question. And the Sadducees came to him, who say there's no resurrection, and they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us um, that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. This is true. This is the law in the Old Testament to protect the widow, to keep the genealogy going. Um, and so they make up a hypothetical situation. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. The second took her, died, and left no offspring. The third, likewise, the seventh left, still no offspring. Last of all, the women also died in the resurrection when they rise again. Whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Now, there's two things to notice about this. The first is that Jesus assumes a belief in the resurrection of the dead, um, which is a belief held by the Pharisees, among other Jews at the time, that one day God would bodily resurrect all of his people, that they would come out of the graves have transformed new bodies and live on a new earth in these new bodies for all of eternity. We have, in some ways, reduced the hope of afterlife to this kind of spiritual being in heaven. Um, when, in fact, I think the scriptures on a whole teach in a bodily resurrection. That's the hope that we're waiting for. Jesus teaches this on multiple occasions. In John, it's very explicit. Um, here he assumes it. Now, there's one group called the Sadducees, and this is the first time we see them in the Gospel of Mark. They do not believe in the resurrection, partly because they are cozied up to the powers that are. Uh, they are cozied up to the Romans. Resurrection is dangerous language. It's fighting language. If someone really believed that they would be bodily resurrected, they're much more willing to be tortured. And we have actual historical evidence of this. Um, empires, emperors, tearing people's limbs off, and the people, while their limbs are getting turned off, are mocking them, going, we're going to get these arms back. And you're going to get destroyed. Um, so if, if you're, though, in power and you want the status quo, you want people believing this is all that you've got. Trust me, it's not worth being beat up over this current issue. Just do the best you can with the system that's in place, right? Resurrection, really any afterlife, turns into this kind of 
ability to create martyrs, right? Which is scary for the powers to be. Um, so they don't believe in the resurrection, and they try to trap Jesus. Notice, one, Jesus assumes his belief. I've done in the past sermon series over this idea, the resurrection of the body, um, going through objections, going through the large portion of scriptures that we find it in. I've got some documents I can send your way. Um, so if you're interested in that, if that's the first time you're hearing that, please let me know, and, and we can um, provide some things for you to think about further on that. Um, and then two, you've got this scenario. It's kind of comical. Um, with the bodily resurrection, there are lots of things that seem like they're going to be confusing, right? We can think of them, right? What happens to someone who is cremated and their ashes go everywhere, right? It's, it means there was this weird, like, wind and they all come back together, right? Um, we should hopefully realize, right, I'm not great at science, but I think something happens with your skin, right? Where, like, every seven years or so, like, things get replaced in your body, like... You don't own a particular part of matter in the universe, right? It's all kind of changing and shifting, that kind of thing. So there's lots of interesting questions. I mean, we could go on and on and on about scientific, how will the resurrection work? Here they come up with one such hypothetical, which is seven brothers, they all have the same wife. When they're resurrected, how awkward is that going to be? <laughs> First guy's like, what's up, baby? I miss you for so long. And then all of a sudden... His younger brother comes up and goes, who are you calling baby? That's, that's my wife. You were with her for like, what, one year? Yeah, and then you died. Great job at living. And, and, and I was with her for like seven years. So you move out of the picture. On and on and on and on. All of a sudden, the afterlife is not so very comfortable, right? <laughs> it's a lot like being at a small private high school where there's like 50 kids and everybody dates each other like three times and eventually... <laughs> No conversation is without awkwardness. Um, and sad to say, this is just this is ridiculous, right? How could this happen? And so here's Jesus' answer. It's not flattering, his answer. You don't want to ever hear Jesus say this to you if you ask him a question. He says, is this not the reason you're wrong? Because you don't know the scriptures nor the power of God. <laughs> so you ask Jesus a question, and he says, well, I think you're wrong because you don't know the Bible at all, and you don't understand anything about God. <laughs> It's not what you're looking for. If you skip down to the very end, he ends it with, you are quite wrong. <laughs> Just a period. Um, <laughs> doesn't have too much time to play around with this idea. Um, but here's what he says about it. He says, when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So sometimes we're confused by this passage. Like, okay, so it's not a resurrection. It's more like being angels in heaven. But it's a metaphor. He says it's like being angels in heaven. And the likeness seems to be in the fact that angels are not married. Okay? Um, now, this is an interesting concept. Um, one that we assume at times, but maybe don't think all the way through. That marriage is not eternal. That marriage is, that covenant breaks and ends at death. Um, I think that if we were to build a theology or to build an understanding about marriage um, that keeps this theme central, we might come up with some different ideas about marriage. Um, if we took that part in our vows seriously, right, until death do us part. Um, I think there's lots of implications. I can't draw all of them out. I haven't particularly drawn them all out in my own head yet. Um, but for one, I would think I would never use this passage to discourage or beat over someone's head um, somebody who is worried about the afterlife. Um, for instance, right? I've just spent 40 years building a relationship with this person. It's all for naught. Right? <laughs> no, I think relationships, particularly what you do here, the logic of the kingdom is it flourishes in the afterlife. 
you're planting seeds that will grow in the, even something bigger and beautiful. It just is not going to be this kind of exclusive relationship that marriage is. Um, and then two, perhaps there's better things to do in our lives than spend the rest of our lives trying to make one particular person happy at the expense of everything else. Maybe there's more eternal things um, to consider. Um, if you understand a marriage is, is this temporary thing. And on the other hand, perhaps there's better things to do with our lives than to spend the, the rest of our lives arguing and hating one particular person um, in light of eternity. Um, I think perhaps healthier marriages could flourish um, with this principle. Again, I'm not sure exactly how that works. Uh, I would be very interested in, in your meditations on that idea and, and how we might implement that into thinking about marriage and helping marriages flourish together. Um, during this part of life where we are united as, as one flesh a married couple is. Um, Jesus, though, assumes this marriage covenant is over. And so he says, that's why your scenario doesn't make sense. It, it's, not, it's not available. And then he says, as for your belief that the dead aren't resurrected, um, have you not read in the book of Moses about the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. Now, the Sadducees only believe in the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, which is why they don't believe in a resurrection, um, because the first five books don't contain anything about that. Uh, it's the later Old Testament books that start to develop this idea of the afterlife and this hope for a resurrection. Jesus here, though, goes on their own turf, and he goes and quotes from Exodus, one of their books, and says, Haven't you even read the little part of the scriptures you think are true? And he says, God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's present tense. The argument here seems to be, obviously they're dead right now. So either God's a liar, um, because God's not the God of the dead, but the living, or God plans one day to raise them back up to full bodily life. Again, sometimes we're in, um, we're tempted to short-circuit that and think, no, it simply means they're with God right now, in this kind of heavenly afterlife. I think, though, in the context about resurrection, what Jesus is saying is, no, the expectation is, God, for him truly to be the God of these three men, not past tense, but present tense, means there has to be this hope that one day they'll be raised again to new bodily life. So he gets out of these two questions, these two traps. And then we get to um, the expectations. So a scribe comes up and he hears them disputing with one another and sees that he's answering all of them well. And so he asks them a question. What commandment's the most important of all? There's this old Jewish saying that a rabbi should be able to answer what is the most important duties of the law while they're standing on one foot. Um, the idea being, if you have to take 17 hours to communicate what God expects from you, you probably aren't an expert yet. You need to reduce that, right? What's the key point here? Um, this is the question the scribe's asking Jesus. You know Jesus is a preacher or an academic because he's asked for one thing and he gives two things. Um, this is a classic preacher, right? I've got one point left and then five points later. Um, or an academic. I have a simple question, yes or no. They're like, well... I'll say yes, but let me add these three other supplementary points to that, that answer. He goes, here's the most important. Hero Israel is called the Shema from Deuteronomy. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love him with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandment greater than these. Can we just pause and say how much different... PR about Christianity, public relations, how the media portrays Christianity would be if we really followed these 
if we really took these seriously. If we really thought these two commandments were more important than everything else. If we thought, yeah, maybe there's some other things we're responsible for, but these two take the cake. These are our priorities. To love God with everything that we've got. And then to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. Instead, what Christians are known for doing, and I think we receive the correct press because we do this, is we're known for narrowing down our neighbors to the lowest common denominator. So usually people we'd already like anyways, even if we didn't have this command. Um, and then we're, we're, we're good at loving them as it's convenient for us. Um, as it benefits us. Um, but not really as we would love ourselves. Not really as we would really deeply, truly hope to be treated ourselves. Um, I've got to imagine this big change would be made to Christianity as a whole, to the church, to even my own life, if, if we were really able to let this soak into the deepest parts of our hearts and our minds. Um, it's the most important commandment. And I think Jesus gives these two parts here in response to this one question because, in a sense, they're inseparable. I'm not sure one makes sense without the other. Someone who loves God and receives God's love is someone who then goes and shares that love with other people. It's very clear throughout the rest of the scriptures. John makes this extremely clear in his first epistle, 1 John. He says, If you walk by a brother in need and have no love in your heart for him, how dare you claim that you know the love of God? He says those two things go together. You can't have one without the other here. Jesus says, You want to know, if we boil it down, what's my expectation? So it's easy, it doesn't take a genius to point out flaws, right? I mean, it really doesn't. You don't have to be that smart to figure out all the things that are wrong with a system or an organization or a person. Um, you just have to be observant. What's really hard and where you get like geniuses, people who are brilliant, people who rise up to be CEOs, are people who can figure out the solution, find a way forward. Say, yeah, we can all sit here and complain about what's wrong, but here's where we need to go. And here's Jesus' expectation. Here's his syllabus. Okay, you point out all these things that are wrong with, with the way we're following God, with the way the temple set up. What, what do we need to do? And he says, here's what you need to do. Love God with everything that you've got. Not just a part of your life. Not just a part of your skill set. Don't just love him with your heart and your emotions. Love him with your mind as well. Be willing to study. Be willing to think deeply. Be willing to think hard. But don't just study with your mind or love God with your mind. Love Him as well with your emotions. Love Him with your strength as well, with your movements, with your actions, with your bodily life, with your time, with your resources, with your skills. Do that, and then as well, love your neighbors as, as truly and perfectly as you love yourself. So that's the expectation. That's what we need to do. Now, what's interesting is the scribe, actually, they have a friendly conversation about this. The scribe's convinced. He says, you're right. You've truly said that he is one. There's no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. This is very interesting. The scribe is a legal expert in the law. He here seems to get what Jesus has been saying. Jesus has been condemning the temple system, the sacrificial symptom system. And the scribe here seems to be on the verge of saying, yeah, you're right. If we did this, the sacrificial system would be redundant. If we followed you, and if we loved God and loved others, burnt offerings, sacrifices, those kind of things wouldn't be required anymore. And watch Jesus' response. This is so cool. Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, way better than the Sadducees. Sadducees get, you're quite wrong. They get, yeah, that's pretty wise. And Jesus goes, 
you are not far from the kingdom of God. Can I tell you this this morning? Everyone look at me. When you choose to love God with everything that you've got, whatever other doubts there might be in your life, here's what you shouldn't doubt. You're not very far from the kingdom. And when you choose to love other people, as surely as you love yourself, you can doubt a whole lot of things. But you should hear Jesus saying to you, you're not very far from the kingdom. You're right there. This is where it's at. This is what, this is what we're aiming for. If you, can, if you can lean in to that sweet spot, you'll be in the right place. So he has a good encounter with the scribe. Um, after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. They've all had enough, okay? Everyone's done being embarrassed by Jesus. He's on to teach them. As Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. Jesus here quotes Psalm 110. He's making a pretty um, detailed exegetical argument. I'm just not going to go into it this morning with you. Um, the point of it is Jesus is claiming he's the Messiah. He's the king. He's the one these Old Testament people were talking about who would come. Why should we listen to him? Who is he? Well, he's the king. He's the one with the true authority. He's the one who gets to set the expectations. And then he ends with an illustration. He started the chapter with a negative illustration about these tenants, this parable of the tenants, people who were disobeying. Now he'll give a positive illustration. He said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces. They have the best seats of the synagogues. They have places of honor at feasts. But they devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. He says, They'll receive the greater condemnation. It's a warning surely to all religious leaders. And then he does this. He, he hurts people watching. And he finds this nameless woman who goes down in history as an example of faith. He sets up shop. He sits down opposite the treasury and he starts watching people put money into the offering. But he, he sees a lot of rich people come and they're putting in a lot of money. And then he sees a poor widow come and she puts in two small copper coins together. They just make a penny. And then he, he sees that and he goes, okay, I need, I need to talk to people. Come here. Disciples, come here. Let me tell you what I just saw. He says, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all of those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Seems like in God's economy, um, quantity is measured a little bit differently. Um, it's measured more by sacrifice um, than it is by pure, raw amounts, um, gross product. Um, so for the millionaire who puts in 100000 towards the kingdom or towards Jesus' um, mission, um, perhaps it's not smiled upon as much as the person living under minimum wage who puts in 2000 3000 4000 We, uh, as a church, have been through a lot. We have been for six and a half years. We have a very diverse congregation, so we have... Um, we're blessed with people. I don't think this passage, Jesus is not, I think, saying anything bad about wealthy people here. I think he's trying to encourage people who have little, um, but who are giving it. He's trying to say, no, it's notice. God's smiling upon you. 
Um, and so at our congregation, we have people who are blessed. They make wealth. Um, they use it wisely. And they, they bless the church. With zeros, sometimes we can't count. We're just like, that's a lot of zeros. And then we have kids and high schoolers and young families with lots of little babies. And, and we've got, you know, Kyle's brother keeps putting buttons into our offering plate. And I keep telling him, we can't do anything with those buttons. They're not monetary. They serve no purpose. In fact, at this point, we have to hire someone to come pick up the buttons every month. And so we're losing money on the whole thing. Um, I, I mean, I've sat there and I've seen someone put in a $5 bill. I've seen someone put in a $1.27. And I've thought that was our biggest contribution of the day. And I thought, you know, God was looking down on the situation. That's what stood out to him. Was, was that lunch money for the day. That lunch money for the rest of the week. Now there's another way to read this passage. It's kind of interesting to me. It's an alternative, alternative reading where Jesus here is sad to see the widow put this money in. Um, because she's supporting this temple structure. These scribes who we've already been told don't care about her. They're devouring her. The whole temple system itself is about to be destroyed. And Jesus is looking at her going, this is so sad. She's giving everything she has to these people who aren't going to even provide for her, to the system that's not going to be around very long. Which for someone like myself and other church leaders, I think is a, a strong warning for people who spend the money of the church that you need to spend it wisely. You need to make sure you're taking care of people. You need to make sure you're not buying long robes and getting fancy seats at dinners and long introductions in public. So if we were to try to tie in these different passages in one broad overarching theme, let's think about who is this man? Why should we trust him? And what's his expectation of us? Well, who he is is he's Jesus claiming to be the king, claiming to have all authority. And that's partly why we should trust him. Again, why we should trust him is because he seems to have so much more wisdom and authority than all of these other leaders. They can't trap him. They can't hunt him down. Because he carries with him the promise of the Father of resurrection life, of eternal life, of kingdom life. And what's he expecting? He's got all this criticism for what's going on. And, and you and I could sit down for hours and talk about everything that's wrong with the church, and everything that's wrong with each other, and everything that's wrong with our nation, and everything that's wrong with our world. But what's the solution? What's our goal? Where are we going forward? What's the expectation here? Jesus is trying to tell us loud and clear. It's to love God. It's to love your neighbor. And it's to do both of those things in a self-sacrificial way like this poor widow. It doesn't matter necessarily how skilled you are, but that you use those skills for the kingdom. It doesn't matter necessarily how much money you have, but that you might be generous in that amount of money for the kingdom and for Jesus' mission. We're called as disciples to, to give our all to Jesus, to give our all to the mission, to receive God's love in our own hearts, and then go out and give that love, share that love, be a blessing to those around us. My prayer is that school starts and as some of us are starting to figure out professors or teachers that we continue on as Christians figuring out Jesus. Who is he? Why should we trust him? Why should we listen to him? And at the end of the day, what does he want from us? And what's he really looking for? What can we give him and know for sure 
that, that we're giving him what he desires? What can we give him where he says, man, you're close? Nothing excites me more than that. Than the idea that, that I might know in a very specific way what I could do to hear Jesus say, it's not far from you. You're on the right path. Loving God, loving others, giving sacrificially like this poor little widow. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this time this morning. I thank you for the scriptures that you have given us. I thank you for your teachings passed down um, through the scriptures. I thank you for your life and for your ministry. Um, I pray that uh, we would respond to you in appropriate ways, that, that we would follow you.